The Jet Set Breakfast. Music, culture, lively and critical discussions on SAFM. As we move through COVID-19, yes, we are at level two. It's been months and months and months of this journey, a difficult journey indeed. But we've got uh, our stalwart making sure that we can understand and uh, really get to grips with what the virus is. Professor Helen Rees is here for all your frequently asked questions, your FAQ. She is a medical researcher and the founder and executive director of the Witz Reproductive Health and HIV Institute of the University of Witwatersrand. She's also chair of the South African Health Products Regulatory Authority and a member of the World Health Organization International Health Regulations Committee in COVID-19. Prof. Reese, as always, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for having me. Prof, I'm going to start. Someone says, I think this is kind of interesting. Prof. Reese, with so many vaccine trials happening around the world, what other criteria South Africa would use in selecting a vaccine? And can one assume that a South African developed vaccine would be first prize? And why would a South African vaccine be best for us? Really very good questions, and, and they're quite right. I mean, it's very encouraging. There are now over 20 clinical trials of vaccines worldwide that are going on, and there are, some are at the early stages of clinical trials, and some now, a few of them are in these much more advanced stages where there are thousands of people who are participating. And as we know, in South Africa, we are doing one with the oxygen, and that's in the sort of that general people here, in fact, 2,000 people. So <clears throat> criteria to select, it's a very good question because these vaccines are constructed in different ways. Um, and because of that, they, they might, they're very likely to have different characteristics or be tested. Some of them, for example, might not get such a good immune response from old people and others might get a much better immune response from, from people who are, say, over 65. Um, and, and that's obviously going to influence which vaccines you would want to choose in your own setting. The problem will be that when we first get vaccines, we won't have a lot of choice because we're going to get very, very small quantities worldwide, uh, especially if we, what we're asking should happen and that it's evenly divided between all countries of the world. So we'll have a small number of vaccines and it'll be the first past the post, if you know what I mean. We'll, we'll have the vaccines that have gone through clinical trials, have shown to be uh, effective and safe, and then we'll get a small quantity. And frankly, we will then look at what is that vaccine, what are its characteristics, will it work in people with, for example, comorbidities such as diabetes or HIV, will it work in older people? And then we will decide uh, how to use it. So, so the criteria to select would be great if we were in that position, but to begin with, and really I think to the end of uh, uh, next year, we're going to probably want to grab every effective vaccine that's on the market that we can get so we can start to cover our population. What are the costs of these kinds of vaccines going to be? I mean, I was looking at something and it was like over a thousand rand was what they were suggesting. Yes, and and cost, the, the different technologies will cost different amounts because some are just much more expensive to develop and to manufacture than others. So that would be the first thing. The second thing is that 
whether this is um, a sort of a country to a company private negotiation and there the costs really will be set in that negotiation will be set by the company and what we've seen historically when you have that kind of one-on-one negotiation you tend to get much much higher costs and the kind of costs you're you're describing i mean we're, we're looking at you know well over a hundred dollars in some cases for a single dose so so what what's happening again worldwide is we're trying to pull together the power of having large populations from many countries um, ordering through a mechanism that the WHO is involved with um, from companies. And in that, in that equation, when the companies will know they'll have a big market and the countries will know that they'll get some vaccine, in that equation, the understanding would be that we would keep the cost, the companies would keep the costs right down to just a little bit more than what it's costing them to manufacture. And that's, uh, so that's going to be a very important negotiation worldwide to try initially during the pandemic to get reasonably accessibly cost vaccines. And the kind of figures we, we might be talking about might be things like 20 US dollars. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about. So, Prof, um, someone wants to know about the, um, or Lisa wants to know about thyroid and cholesterol health um, in relation to COVID-19, what kind of effects would COVID-19 have on thyroid and cholesterol health? Well, <clears throat> I think it, it, there, there might be two ways to look at this. Um, at the moment, in terms of, if he's talking about people with high levels of cholesterol or, say, an overactive thyroid, there isn't any evidence that the COVID-19 actually has uh, uh, an effect on those conditions. But we're learning all the time. And I might say that this week and I might tell you something different next week. <laughs> but people who have got, say, high cholesterol and have diseased arteries, uh, so they have diseases of their vascular system, um, those would, that would be regarded as what we call a comorbidity, like diabetes and being very overweight. That would be a risk factor. People who've got vascular disease, that would be a risk factor. Um, <clears throat> but thyroid have been particularly um, noted as a risk factor. Many people have an underactive thyroid, others have an overactive thyroid. Um, but essentially, anybody who's got a, a serious underlying chronic illness should regard themselves at higher risk and should take lots of precautions still and continue to. Someone asks, if you have recovered from COVID, can you donate blood or even be an organ donor at a later stage? Um, well, I think that that would depend on whether you are testing negative, but I can't see in anyone, somebody who's perfectly fit and well and has had COVID, it's a coronavirus, you've cleared it. I can't see any reason why you would not be able to, to either give blood. The, the difference would be whether you are still, whether we can still detect uh, the, the genetic material of the virus. That, that would be something that people would not want to consider. You'd have to be testing it negative. Yeah, Prof, um, uh, Joy in Rondebosch says, uh, I I think that I contacted a COVID person on the 8th of August. My first symptoms were the 12th of August. My positive test was the 14th of August. At uh, what point am I no longer infectious to others? Well, if if she had symptoms on the 12th of August, um, then we would say to, we would then give guidance to say, then give yourself 10 days. Um, after you get your first symptoms. 
and that's assuming that you have no no you are, that she's better that she's feeling well. I would say though that if um, if she's not feeling well uh, um, and she's got persistent symptoms, she should discuss this with with a doctor. We are able to do more tests now than we were. We had terrible shortage of tests at one stage. There are more tests available, and anyone who's had a positive test, has persistent symptoms, should discuss this with their doctor so that, uh, and, and this would be an indication for perhaps having another test done. So, you know, um, Prof. Helen, one of the things that, that interested me recently was that they've now discovered that you can, in fact, be reinfected. So there was the Hong Kong man who was infected again after four and a half months um, uh, of having had COVID. Yes. <clears throat> well, first of all, if you think about it, with the common cold, these are coronaviruses as well. There are at least four that cause common colds. And we know with the, those coronaviruses that the uh, antibodies last not very long, about three months, and that you can get reinfected. But if you think about this, we've had, what, 23 million cases worldwide. And we've had these sporadic reports. This is the first time that they've actually been able to look at the, the genetic material in, in these two viruses. The first episode when, the, when this young man was sick and then subsequently when he went through an airport and was tested and they found a positive, but he wasn't sick. So, so it's not surprising that one or two people will get reinfected, but it's not something that we're seeing in a widespread manner. And as we say, one of the, the, the problems that we're noting is we can't say at the moment how good our immune response is at protecting us from second infections. It would seem in most people you're not going to get a second infection. But we also don't know how long we will that immune protection will last for. Um, and this is obviously a, a big concern. This is one of the reasons why we're, we're looking for a vaccine, because... Yeah. Uh, we, we're worried that that immune response, if it's like the common cold, isn't going to protect us necessarily for more than a few months. Someone says, and I, I don't understand this, but you might, any more news on the ACE or ACE inhibitor slash COVID risk? Well, um, so, so the ACE2 receptor, I think that's, that, I'm not sure if, they, if that's yeah. what they're asking. This is, this is on certain cells in the body. And this is the receptor that the virus latches to and how it gets into it. Now, so the news that things like, for example, uh, you're at higher risk of getting, getting coronavirus and getting severely ill. And one of the issues, diabetes, especially if it's poorly controlled, if levels are high, is that you have more of these two receptors. We also know that Men uh, worldwide, at least, not so much in South Africa, but worldwide, men are more likely to become infected and to become ill than women, and they have more ACE2 receptors. So these receptors um, uh, uh, are very important um, in the way the virus gets into the body, but it's also an important way for us to understand potentially how can we how can we interfere with this virus so if we could find a way of interfering with the way that the virus latches onto these receptors um, yeah. then that would be um, something that, that we would be able to introduce and there are lots of studies going on that are trying to find ways to sort of mess with this both getting into the cells and then what it does inside the cells so we don't have much time left we do need to go to a break but there is a question 
Are we not declaring people positive when they're not, considering that our recovery rate of 85% is not in line with the rest of the world? In other words, are our tests accurate? I think that, uh, I mean, I've, I've been working drug regulatory authority very closely with the, with the laboratories, both the National Health Laboratory and the private labs. I think we have a very high quality of uh, laboratory evaluation here. And yeah. I know from Sapper's point of view, we've been very strict about uh, approving the test. So I'm not worried about the test. What I think is, is causing a lot of interest is the fact that our mortality rate here is much lower than in other countries. Similarly in India, much lower mortality than say Europe or the US or, or, or Brazil. Yeah. And in other African countries, we're seeing this lower mortality. Um, and we think that we're probably seeing many more asymptomatic. So part of better understanding of why this virus does seem to be behaving differently in some populations versus others. It might be just a matter of age, but there could be some other factors there that we haven't yet understood. It's completely fascinating. Every week you come up with something new, Prof Rees. Thanks very much for joining us and hopefully we'll speak to you next week again. Thanks, Thanks, and have a good week. Yeah, you too. Prof. Helen Rees, she is the medical researcher and the founder and executive director of the WITS Reproductive Health and HIV Institute of the University of Witwatersrand. She's also a member of the Health Organization International Health Regulations Committee in COVID-19. It's fascinating, and as she said to us a few weeks ago, is even though she comes on every week and some of the questions are the same, it's often that the answers change given that we learn more and more about uh, this really strange virus. It's 751.